All right. Yes, once you've met someone, you can take a seat. Uh, hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. So glad you guys are with us. Uh, my name is Josiah. I'd love to meet you after in case this is your first time. I'd love to say what's up. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 14. Uh, so if you would uh, turn to Mark 14, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible so you could follow along, but Mark chapter 14 is where we're at. Mark chapter 14. So, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since really day one, since the start of Jan- January of this year, and uh, we're almost finished with the Gospel of Mark. Um, just I'll let you guys know this as we get closer, but we're probably going to do a short little series in the Holy Spirit after, and then enter into just that Christmas season and start a new book in the new year, and uh, it's just been exciting to see. Just We want to take the first year to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus, like focus in on who he is, what he did, what he claimed, what he said. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The rock is the idea that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we wanted to really slow down and just talk about and look at the person of Jesus all year long and start off this church, family, and community with knowing who Jesus is. So we're in Mark chapter 14. Um, and if you're still turning there, let me just say a couple quick things. Um, obviously, we, we know about the hurricane, Hurricane Michael, that hit North Florida. Um, we're trying to keep our eyes and ears open about any opportunities that might come our way, whether through Church United here in South Florida or Samaritan's Purse. So we'll try to keep you updated if we hear anything. Um, if you do want more information, I would encourage you or point you to Samaritan's Purse's website. Um, but we're going to try to see if there's any th- opportunities that might come our way in the next couple of weeks. Just want you to know that. And then also, it's kind of interesting. Last, last week, I mentioned for the first time how we're having our first international missions trip as a church. Super excited for it. Uh, we're going to go to Haiti March 25th through the 31st. And I, I mentioned this last Sunday for our first time, and I think it was last Sunday, maybe it's Saturday. Um, but like a five-point-something earthquake hit, hit Haiti. I think 15 people plus passed away. And so we just want to keep them in prayers as well. And um, just interesting, you know, as we're talking about this and want to go there and have a heart for it. So keep that in prayer. Uh, but just, I thought I'd let you guys, I thought I'd let you know just about what's going on that way. But Mark chapter 14. All right, let me kind of catch up to speed so you know what's going on. Even if you're here, if you weren't here, we started Mark chapter 14 and we looked at two different tables. And if you're with us, we talked about this table. The first table was where Mary came to Jesus and she poured out very costly perfume on Jesus. Actually, Mark says it's a year's worth of wages. So imagine a 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever, that, that a year's worth of wages pouring out on Jesus saying, Jesus, I love you and I want to show you my love. And then we saw another table. We saw the table of communion. We see where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, taking Passover, and he's instituting the new covenant. He's like, this is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And he's instituting a new covenant at that point in time, and, and still to this day, 2,000 years later, we take communion to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, we looked at those two tables, and we compared Mary's love with just Judas's betrayal. And so she spent a year's worth of wages on Jesus, while Judas is willing to betray Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. And so we left that passage. If you remember, we ended with them going to now the Mount of Olives, and that's where we start today. And so here's what we're going to look at today, and I just want to kind of prep you for this. And it's, it's, just, it's just strange, even for me, as we study this the next few weeks. I mean, we're really in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, right before crucifixion. And in, in this passage, what we're going to see is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. We're going to see his disciples sleeping, and we're going to see an active enemy. And so the main thought today, in a sense, is a praying Jesus and sleeping disciples. We have a praying Jesus and sleeping disciples. And really think about this for a second. You have Jesus who's praying 
the church that is sleeping in an active enemy, and that is still happening today. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, so Jesus is still constantly praying. We have a church many times that is sleeping, and we have an active enemy. And I think this text, like when we see it, when we look at it, we kind of go, man, this so reflects today. A Jesus laboring in prayer, and he's begging the church, wake up, wake up, pray with me, pray with me, and you see an active enemy. And so my hope today is that we as a church would wake up, that we would like join Jesus in this mission, that we join Jesus in what he's doing. And really when I study this and just praying for like our church, like how do I, how do we walk through the garden of Gethsemane moments? Like how do we do this as a church? And really here's how I, I, I see this passage. I see a life dominated by the spirit and a life dominated by the flesh. We're going to see a man, Jesus, who's just in submission to the father. And we're going to see the disciples who are in submission to their flesh. And so I want to like look at this and study this and how do, we, how do we approach this idea of do we live a life seeking the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit, or are we just constantly give it into our flesh and are we asleep? And so we're going to kind of see this contrast between Jesus who's led by the Spirit and the disciples who are sleeping. And, and my hope is that God would wake us up. He'd speak to us. Guys, I know that so often I need to wake up. I need to sense the urgency that the disciples didn't sense or feel or see. And uh, I'm just hoping God wakes us up today and speaks to us. Amen. So we're going to read the text. Actually, we're going to read it fully, and then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. But we're in Mark chapter 14. Look at verse 27. Mark 14, verse 27. Remember, they just took communion. And it says in verse 26, they sung a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. So they're now on the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives is really a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And on the slope of the Mount of Olives, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, as, an, as an oil press area, there's, there's really, there's olive trees and they collect olives and they also press the olives and, and turn it into oil. And that's where they're at. That the Mount of Olives about to enter into the garden. Look at verse 27. It says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I love the little glimmer of hope. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all, all of them are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. And he says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Verse 32, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And listen to this language. Jesus said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. That would freak me out if Jesus like, was like, It's enough. Done. We're done here. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. And now his, now his betrayer 
Judas had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on Jesus and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come? as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me. I I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now the weirdest story in the Bible, verse 51. Now a certain young man followed him having a a linen cloth thrown around his naked body and the young man laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Let's pray. Um, before we do that, <laughs> you're like, what is this? Is that like a streaker in the Garden of Gethsemane? I did not read. Where is that? Like, I've, not ever, I've never seen that before. This is only in Mark's gospel. We don't see this in Matthew, Luke, and John, and I, I, but I do think this is really significant, and actually, we'll, we'll talk about the end, I promise. Um, I know. You're like, I came to church to hear about a streaker in the garden. Yes, but no, not really. But it does speak of so much, and you'll see. You'll see, I promise. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that we can slow down just even, we want, to f- we want to feel, we want to put ourselves in this place, God, where we can just sense, Jesus, what you went through for us. Um, Lord, I just thank you that you can relate to us way more than we think. God, thank you that your son, who's fully God and also fully man, knows what it's like to be distressed and troubled and in pain and in agony. And I just ask, God, that you just, through this, even encourage our hearts. That Jesus, though, though we, that though the disciples abandoned you in the garden, you went through that so we would never have to be abandoned. And we just thank you. And we ask that you'd speak and that, Jesus, your spirit would be here and that we'd hear from you. And this would not just be some, some teaching that is just words, empty words. We want your spirit to be moving. We want to know you more. We want to fall in love with you more. We ask that your grace and your great love would just radically transform our hearts. In your wonderful name, amen. I want you to think about a situation in your life where you felt like all hope was lost. And really, it could have been recent, could have been years ago, could have been when you are a child. But I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you go, there's absolutely no way out of this. Like, why am I going through this? Why did I have to experience this? Why is no one else walking through this? No one can relate. No one understands. No one knows the pain I'm walking through. They don't get me. Where's God even at this moment? And I want you to really kind of feel that situation, that, in that, that moment in your life where you go, there's absolutely, there's no way any good can come from this. There's no way. We're beyond the point of redemption and we're beyond the point of any good coming from this because it's so awful, so wicked. And here's what I want to look at, obviously, is Jesus can relate. Jesus can really deeply relate. It really does encourage me to know that the depths of pain and agony I've experienced, that Jesus has experienced that and more so that Jesus can relate to you and I in our pain and suffering and agony and feeling alone and isolated, that Jesus can understand that and relate to that way more than we give him credit. And I want us to really approach this text maybe in a new light because we, we can't just study this as flesh versus spirit. There is that element to it, but we need to sense what Jesus is walking through. You know, there's one author, his name's N.T. Wright, and he's writing about this passage, and he goes, it's almost, it's almost embarrassing to watch and hear what Jesus is saying. It's like difficult. It's almost to, to be an onlooker and going, what is Jesus saying? Like, think about this. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, I mean, Jesus was and is, he is unstoppable, but it almost seems at this point as if he's not. 
Like, think about the Gospel of Mark. Casting out demons, healing the blind, right? Forgiving people of sins, restoring lame people, like people who can't walk. He's doing miracle after miracle. You're going, this guy's unstoppable. Demons trembled his name. He's walking on water. Like, nothing can stop this guy. And here he is in the garden, pleading with his father over and over again, take this away from me. And really, this passage has caused a lot of people to go, I, I don't understand the deed of Jesus in this moment. And in this moment, we do see a side of Jesus where we get to see his humanity in a beautiful way, that Jesus is, yes, he's fully God and he's fully man. And Jesus was tired and weak and he had a heart and he, he could sweat, he could experience pain. And he's in this moment where you go, I've never seen Jesus so vulnerable. You know, Luke's gospel tells us, and you probably know this, but Luke's gospel, Luke, who's a doctor, writes that Jesus was in the garden. It was so intense that he's literally sweating drops of blood. It's like mixed, his sweat's mixed with blood. And there's that term, I think it's hematidrosis, where like this can happen, the blood capillaries in, your, in you can just pop, and as you sweat, blood can come out with this. And that's only if you're under intense, intense pressure and that's happening to Jesus. And I want you to think about that time in your life where maybe you haven't felt it to that extreme, but you kind of go, there's no hope. How, how is God going to get me out of this? How is God going to make anything good come from this? I don't want to go through this. You know, I want you to think about a time where you've heard those sayings from family or friends or a doctor. Someone looks at you and says, it's cancer. Your kids say to you, I don't want to follow Jesus. Someone curses you out. Some re- you lost your job. You lost something. Your finances are upside down. And you're just going, I, I don't know how we're going to get through this season. And you feel that pain and you feel that knot in your stomach. And we have a God who says, yeah, I can relate to that. We have a God who says, yeah, I, I've experienced that ca- same kind of pain and suffering. It's interesting because Gethsemane literally means, the, the term Gethsemane means oil press. It's where olives were pressed and made oil. And here's the beginning of Jesus pressing. Here's where you could say he's beginning to be like squashed in a sense. It gets so intense. His passion, his suffering at this point in this text really begins now. And we're going to see a side of Jesus that I think all of us not just can relate to, but desperately need, which is he in this moment, please listen, he in this moment needed to rely and depend on the Holy Spirit like he's never had to. And like for us, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus did depend on the Holy Spirit. He did walk out his life in his flesh, in humanity, and he's also filled with the Spirit. And he's calling on God and saying, God, I need you. There's a side where we see Jesus that people, again, they don't like this side. Some cultures, some Western cultures, some Eastern cultures, they don't like to talk about this, but we must embrace this. There's something so beautiful about the side of Jesus, who he knows what it's like to suffer and be in pain. And so I'm sharing this with you because here's what we see in this passage. We're going to see disciples who constantly are giving into their flesh, constantly showing their self-confidence and their independence. And then we're going to see Jesus who's constantly in submission to God and not independent, but dependent on God in, in just every way. And so really, this is really what we see is like almost a battle between the spirit and the flesh. How do the disciples respond? We see them responding in their flesh time and time again. How does Jesus respond being, being in the spirit? Yes, he confesses his fears. Yes, he, he confesses some of these things, but yet you see him completely depending on the spirit of God, on the strength of God. And so we need to see that there is this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Jesus even calls us out. He goes, indeed, the spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Like Jesus even points this out. So let me just kind of catch up to speed in case you're like, I'm new to church, or I'm new to all of this, flesh, spirit, what is this? This is weird Christian terminology. You know, and let me just apologize because I sometimes do feel bad when I hear Christians talking and they're like, oh, my flesh, man. And people are like, what the heck are you talking about? And it sounds so weird. And again, if you hear a Christian, we're, please forgive us. We're working on it. We're trying not to sound weird. We're trying to sound better, but we're working on it. But here's what we do see. There is this beautiful truth throughout the New Testament of this idea of a Christian, a follower of Jesus, having this internal battle between their flesh and their spirit. Let me just read a verse and I'll explain even more. It's Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. 
Uh, Paul writes, I say then, listen to this, all of us. He says, his command, walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, or it wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Anyone else like relate to that internal battle? And, and here's why this is so significant. When you say, when you've decided, I'm following Jesus, Jesus has saved me, he's rescued me, he's redeemed me, everything was paid for on the cross, the Bible says you've been born again. You receive the free gift of salvation, you've been born again. You know what happens at that moment in time? You are still you, but you now have a new nature, a new will, new passions, new desires, and it might be small, and it might be like a little seed planted in you, and it will express itself, but you now have new nature, new mind, new will, you're, you're a new creation in Christ, the Bible would say. But here's the problem. I'm still Josiah, and I'm still in the flesh, but now I have the Spirit of God in me as well. And there's this constant battle between what we, the Bible would say, my flesh and my spirit. And really, here's the flesh, if you want to write down the definition. Your flesh is that part of you that wars against God. <laughs> your, your flesh is that part of you that says, God, I can do this. I don't, I don't need you in this moment. God, I got this. God, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm pretty mature now. I can do this at this point. And our flesh is, is at war with our spirit, and our spirit at war with our flesh. And, and we just see this overlap in the Christian. And you probably have seen Christians maybe internally struggle with this. And you're like, you look like a crazy person. Like you have so much confidence and fear. And I can do this and I can't. And like, there seems to be like this battle constantly between our flesh and our spirit. And we're seeing this happening in this section with the disciples and with Jesus. Because again, he had a human heart. He could sweat. He could bleed. He could be in pain. He could be tired. And we see him constantly giving himself to the spirit, and we see the disciples constantly giving themselves to their flesh. So let's look at this more in depth, all right? We're going to walk through this text, and I want you to see the disciples' self-confidence, and I want you to see Jesus' response. So a few thoughts. We'll put them up here really quick so you can see how we're going to walk through this. Uh, first is this, and they're kind of like paralleled. Uh, we see the flesh is confident in self. The spirit is submissive to God. And you're going to see this in the New Testament. In the, Bible. the flesh is always confident in, in self. The flesh will always be confident in self. The spirit will be submissive to God. Next, we're going to see that the flesh sleeps while the spirit prays. The flesh sleeps while the spirit prays. Then we're going to see the flesh, listen, the flesh reacts in moments of chaos while the spirit is guided by the word in peace. And that's what we're going to see from the disciples reacting in a moment of chaos. And we're going to see Jesus being guided by the word of God and by the peace of God. And there really is a difference. And then lastly, what we're going to look at is what's up with the naked guy running away in the garden. All right, that's going to be kind of our last thought in that. So let's just walk through this because this is bizarre, but this is so good. And again, we can't, don't miss the, the internal battle and the struggle and the cry in the heart of Jesus in this passage as well. So uh, first thing is this, we're going to see the flesh is confident in self. The flesh is confident in self, number one. So in verse 27, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey, listen, the, sh the shepherd, me, I'm going to be stroked. Like, sh I can't even say stricken. I don't know words. Uh, I'm going to be hit tonight, <laughs> and you're going to scatter. All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. Look at verse 29. What does Peter say? Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Again, number one, the flesh is confident in self. Notice Peter's confidence, obviously. And this is, this is just Peter throughout the New Testament. I mean, and this is like his, his, almost his greatest strength and greatest weakness is it's courage. It's side like, Jesus walking on water? I can call me out, Jesus, I'll walk on water. There's like a courageous side of Peter, and people say, oh, he's self-confident. There are times where he's Christ-confident. Like when you read the Gospels, he's confident in Christ, and that's when he's walking on water. Then he looks around, and he starts sinking. He's not confident in Christ at that moment. Peter's issue is this courage, and, but also this other issue of self-confidence. 
And we have friends like this. And you might be that friend, and don't look at the person next to you who's like that Peter, but there's that person who's like, they have a crazy high self-confidence. Confidence in them. I can do this. I'm pretty great. And they have a lot of self-confidence. And this is the issue with Peter. Jesus says, all of you are going to be made to stumble. All of you are going to be scattered tonight. And Jesus, Peter's like, not me. I, I can't speak for these guys. But me? Mm-mm. And that's Peter. And what does Proverbs 16, 18 says? Proverbs 16 says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, right? Is that not Peter? So much pride, so much self-confidence. And it's like, well, the fall is just around the corner. Here's the fifth thing, and this is kind of put it in our language today. There's almost like this, this big desire and movement of people saying, listen, you be independent. You can do it. You don't need anyone. You, you're strong enough. Find your inner strength. And there's kind of like, and, and we see like even, it's weird. I watch like Disney with my son and they'll have like little slogans. I'm like, ah, like it sounds good, but it's so, I'm like, don't. I'm like, no, it's not true, Micah. And I have to like, don't listen to that Disney slogan. Like there's, there's almost this movement though of like, you can do it. You're strong enough. You don't need anyone else. And here's what we see. The opposite in the Bible is, no, 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 don't be independent, but be fully dependent on God. Like when you read the Beatitudes, think about this. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. It's just kind of like blessed are the, uh, those who just realize the strength is not found in themselves. The kingdom of God is upside down. The way up is down. You know, and the way, if you want to go up, you're going to go, like, it's just so different. And when you see the gospel, when you see the, when you see the teachings of Jesus, it's, listen, don't have independence from God, but have a complete dependence upon God. But Peter, in this moment, and in many other moments, he's extremely self-confident. He's extremely, I can do this. And I, this is what's interesting to me, in verse, if you notice in verse 31, Jesus goes, actually, Peter, it's funny you say that they will, actually, with you, Peter, you're going to actually deny me three times before the, the rooster crows twice. The rooster would crow around midnight and right before like sunrise. So he's basically saying before the night's over, before the end of the night, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. And he says even after that, after Jesus calls him out, Peter's basically like, you're a liar. I'm going to die with you. Like Peter's so confident he can basically say, Jesus, you're wrong. That's a big, bold statement. Jesus, you're wrong. I don't know what you think, but I'm actually going to die with you tonight. Yeah, it doesn't matter what other people say or do. And I'd say, listen, here's the danger. We see the self-confidence completely in the flesh. And I want to point this out because this is really interesting. Men and women in the Bible, when they fall, you guys, it's not usually in the area where they're weak. It's usually in the area where they're very strong. And think about this. David in the Psalms is writing about his integrity. David actually like boasts in his integrity quite a bit early on in the Psalms. And where does David fall? In his integrity. Abraham is the guy who just has crazy faith. He believes God and God's like, you're righteous. Abraham has crazy faith. But before he sta- when he stands before Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, is that your wife? He's like, uh, no, it's my sister. It's the lack of faith in that moment. You know, Peter, it's his courage, and that's where he falls. The, the point is, we don't always fail in our weaknesses. We, we fail in our strengths, and we must be aware of that. And most people, when I've, I've talked to young men or talked to people, and it's like, no, 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 I'm good. I, I conquered that. I'm like, no. Like, as soon as someone says that, I'm like, no, you haven't. Dang it. You know, like, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. As soon as someone's like, no, I'm good with that. Uh, check. Done with that area of my life. Never going to struggle with that again. It's like, oh, man, you're probably going to fall in that like tomorrow. Like, there's usually that issue of this, this overly self-confidence. Oswald Chambers said it beautifully. He says, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. It's very hard talking to someone who, who thinks they're good in an area and they're really blind and you're going, hey, I know you think you're strong, but you're really blind. They're like, no, I'm not. And you're like, oh, gosh, you're blind. And it's so difficult. And Peter's so courageous. And I'm saying, we got to beware of confidence in us, confidence in self, confidence in me. And I love Jesus because in this moment in verse 28, maybe you notice that he gives them hope. He's like, all of you are going to be made to stumble. But listen, when I, ra- when I rise, do you notice that? He speaks of his resurrection. They still missed it. Jesus died and they're like, all hope's lost. 
Jesus is like, hey, when I'm raised, when I'm raised, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And that's exactly what they do. They meet Jesus in Galilee. And he leaves them with this glimmer of hope. But again, they still don't see it. So we see the first thing is, again, the flesh is confident in self. But now, now we're going to notice this. The spirit is submissive to God. The spirit is submissive to God. Look at verse 27. Now let's read about Jesus. Or sorry, verse 32. It says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. Jesus fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So much has been written about this garden moment and Jesus' agony and pain and suffering and sweating blood and saying, my soul wants to die. Like his physical heart is like, I could stop beating. I'm in so much agony right now. I'm in so much pain right now. And it's not just this fear of death that we, we got to like dismiss that. We'll, we'll look at that. But it's not this like, oh, I don't want to die. I mean, we, again, we study this. Jesus had such crazy boldness and he's led by the Spirit. He's doing miracles and then we see this moment. He's just like, he almost seems so vulnerable and so weak and he's praying over and over again, let this hour pass, let this hour pass, let this hour pass. And yet he says something brilliant. He goes, but not what I want, not what I will, but your will. And I, I ha- we have to talk about this. Jesus did have feelings and yet he did not give in to his feelings. Jesus had feelings, but yet he submitted his will to the Father's will. He goes, I'm going to say not what I want, but what you want, what your will. Because we do need to understand that Jesus lived and walked among us also in the flesh. So let me point this out. Because people will ask, well, how did Jesus get through this? I mean, the answer might be, well, he's fully God. And, and yes and no. We've got to understand, Jesus is fully God. Yes to that. But how did he get through this in his humanity? Being led by the Spirit. Relying on the Spirit. We need to study this and, and really search this more. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Bible says he wrapped himself in humanity. He literally clothed himself with humanity. So he goes, I know it's like to be tired. I know it's like to have feelings being overwhelmed to the point of wanting to die. Overwhelmed to my heart almost giving out. Jesus can relate to us in that way. Jesus in this moment had to say, God, I'm going to submit my feelings to your will. And I think this is so essential in the Christian life where you and I might feel a certain way and we say, I'm going to submit how I feel to the will and the call of God in my life. Please don't miss that. I talk to many believers who I go, I feel like I need to move here. I feel like I need to marry this person. I feel like I need to do this. And it's like, but what are you called to do? And someone who's living by their feelings, it's gonna, you're going to end up in a weird, I don't want to diminish feelings. Feelings are not bad. Feelings are not evil. They're not wicked. But we cannot be led by our, Jesus had these strong feelings and says, but I'm going to surrender how I feel to your will, God. I might feel a certain way about this, but I'm surrendering how I feel right now to your will for my life. And I'd say, we need to take a page and learn this from Jesus. Say, how do I surrender my feelings to his will? And he had to do this by calling out and being honest with his feelings. And at the same time, crying out to God and saying, but not not my will, your will. I'm going to rely and rest on you. And we do learn that as someone who's led by the spirit of God is in some complete submission to God. It's not what I think is best, not what I want. I'm going to submit right now my feelings to your will. This is so important. I think we can be in danger of being led by our feelings and not led by the Spirit. And let us be people not led by our feelings. My feelings will drive me mad. We walk by faith, not by sight. If I, my feelings will make me do and say and act in the weirdest ways. And I go, God, help me right now to, to really not be led by my feelings this moment, but by your Spirit. And we, we learn this from Jesus. 
Jesus does this so well. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in just a second as he prays. But here's what I want to point out. There's a saying, there's something he says here that is so profound to me that we can't move on. He goes, I want, he goes Lord, look again at verse uh, 36. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Now, what is this cup? What is this cup Jesus referring to? Like, take this cup away from me. It just seems so real. Like, he just had communion, right? He's like, this cup is my blood, but what is this cup? Take this cup from me. What, what is that? And here's the idea. All throughout the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, I mean, you can say in Jeremiah several times, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, there's this idea of the cup of the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God. And God says basically to the people, hey, you're going to drink the cup of my wrath. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 15 it says this, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And there's constantly this idea of like, take this cup of wrath, this wine of wrath. They're going to drink it. And here's Jesus saying, no, what? actually, I'm going to drink it. I'm going to drink this cup of wrath. You're not going to have to drink the cup of wrath because I'm going to, he goes, but let this cup, pa- this cup is so difficult. I'm going to take on the wrath of God. Do you understand that's what Jesus is saying? I'm taking on the wrath of God. Uh, Jesus took on the wrath of God for my, my sins, my failings, my failures, my, my the disgusting things I've done that you've done. Jesus drank that cup to the bottom. He's like, the wrath of God must be poured out, but it's going to be poured out on me. I'm going to take on the wrath of God. One author said it this way. He said it, and it's just, I had to read it. He says, in the garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father, and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss chasm, the nothingness of the cup, Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. The cup of the wrath of God is happening in the garden. I mean, this, this passion moment, this suffering moment starts here, not just on the cross. And here's the point. Because Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God, we can have the cup of the salvation of God. It's actually Psalm 116, verse 13. It says this, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that great? Jesus took the cup of wrath, so what cup could we have? The cup of salvation. We can take the cup of communion that we took last week, that Jesus instituted last week. We can take this cup of salvation. By his stripes, by his blood, we are healed. We can take up that cup because he first took up the cup of the wrath of God. This guy named, uh, I think it was Daniel Aiken, he said it this way. He says, Gethsemane was hell for Jesus, but I'm so thankful he went through it. You see, if there is no Gethsemane, there's no Calvary. If there is no Calvary, there can be no empty tomb. And if there's no empty tomb, there's only hell for us. This was the start of that hell moment, the wrath of God, the wrath of God being poured out. Because he took of this cup, we don't have to. I'm going to read one more thing. It says, the first man turned from God the Father in a garden. Jesus Christ, the God-man, turned to the Father in a garden. We see Adam in the garden turn from God. We see Jesus in the garden turn to God. He's beginning to take on the wrath of God in the garden in this moment. But can I be honest again? What I see here is Jesus is being completely honest with his feelings and yet submitting that over to the will of God. And that was a, that's what it looks like when someone who's a spi- the spiritual person, man or woman, being led by God will submit ultimately to, to God and his authority and what he says. But moving on, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this contrast now of Jesus praying and the disciples sleeping. So number three or four, you could say the flesh sleeps while the spirit prays. Look at verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleep asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. I've so been there. And they did not know what, what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. 
The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When we read this, and you think about Jesus, who doesn't ask a lot of his disciples, like you never see Jesus like, hey, can you, can you help me with something? Jesus is like, hey guys, please watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. I, I, my greatest hour of need, watch and pray, and they're sleeping three times. Three times he prays, goes back, they're sleeping. That'd be so discouraging. Hey, watch and pray. Oh, you're sleeping again? Come on, go, I'll be right back. You're, oh, you're sleeping again? Like over and over again in the greatest hour of need. And, and what is that? Why, why is prayer so difficult? Like, let's be honest. How many times do we lay our head down on our bed? Like, I'm going to pray for like 20 minutes, and you're out in 20 seconds. Like, what is it? Like, why is prayer so difficult? You know, it's, it's kind of a stupid comparison because I think we, we do fall into sleep and we do kind of give into our flesh when it comes to prayer for some strange reason. You know, if you've ever played the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, as a kid, it's kind of fun because everything can lose and also beat something else. Like, you know, rock can beat uh, scissors and scissors can beat paper and paper can beat rock. Like, it all can lose. They all can lose and they all can win. Here's what we have as Christians. We have Netflix, sleep, prayer. All right. But here's the issue. Um, not all of them win. It's like Netflix beats sleep. Sleep beats prayer. Prayer beats. Like, what, what prayer like seems to lose way too often. Like, what does prayer beat? And it's sad that we so often give into our flesh and we fall asleep. And it, you guys know what it's like. I know what it's like being in the church for a while. Like, hey guys, we're going to do an outreach. Oh, an outreach. That's cool. Hey guys, we're going to do Bible study. Oh, Bible study. That's awesome. Hey guys, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Oh, man, I'm busy that night. Like, what? You know, like, and I wonder why. What is that? What is that? And, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's like, is it because, do we actually believe prayer does work? Do we believe prayer does change things? Do you remember in another gospel, Peter sleeping and Jesus said, hey, Peter, while you were sleeping, Satan asked that he might sift you as wheat, but I've been praying for you. D- don't worry. You haven't been praying. You haven't been praying for this moment, but I've been praying for you. And what we see is sleeping disciples and a praying Jesus. And we see that's where the power lies. The flesh sleeps so often while the, pr- while the spirit prays. And we see this is where the, pr- the power lies. And it's interesting, again, Jesus is, pr- Jesus is praying. Guys, Jesus is praying. Do we get that? Jesus is praying. If Jesus needs to pray, I probably a lot more so. <laughs> Jesus is praying. He's going to the Father. He's crying out. He's expressing himself. One of my favorite verses in light of this and just in, in the realm of prayer is in Hebrews chapter 5. And please, like, li- the author of Hebrews is looking back at the garden, speaking of Jesus, and he writes this in Hebrews chapter 5 or 7, speaking of this moment. Listen to this. He says, Who in the days of his flesh, Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And you can read the context more, but he's, he's looking back and goes, Jesus offered up these cries and prayers and tears, just crying out to God because he needed to. And I have to like point this out because I think there's many people in the church and I think religious Christians, and it's frustrating sometimes, is we don't get this. A lot of times we don't get the fact that Sometimes you just need to cry and have tears and pain and express it and go, God, help. You're able to save. Help. It's very frustrating sometimes when I see someone suffering in the church and someone comes along and they're like, the joy of the Lord is your strength, man. You know, do not grow weary. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like you're more than a conqueror in Christ. They're like, can I, just, can I just be hurt? Can I just call out to God? Like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Like, can I tell you the Bible gives you the opportunity, the right, the privilege to say, no, you can. You can be expressive. Jesus is not curse God. He's not belittle God. He's just going, God, this is really difficult. This is really hard for me. Help. You know that actually, even the prayers, like I said, being answered, Luke's gospel again says God sent him an angel in this moment to strengthen him. So his prayers were heard again. But I'm, I'm just trying to point out that it's okay to be honest with God. 
And for some reason, like, again, I don't, I don't want to be a part of a, a, a Christian community that's fake, shallow. It's going to be all better. Like, no, sometimes we just need to be better Christians. We need to be better and weep with those who weep. We need to be better. I need to be better with that. We need to better go, you're in pain, I'm in pain. Not, let me not give you some weird cliche Bible verse I just read on my coffee mug this morning. Let me actually be in pain with you. And we need to feel it together. We do need to feel it together. There's a time and place to encourage someone to speak the word and some speak life. And there is a time and place for that, for sure. But it shouldn't probably be the first thing out of our mouth. Hebrews 5, we just see he's going, he's just crying out to God with vehement tears and cries. God's able to save, but he's just crying out. And I think God gives us the same right and opportunity to say, you know what, this is just painful. But I'm going to submit my feelings right now to the will of God. I'm gonna, this is so painful. But I'm going to submit how I feel to what you ultimately called me to, God. And we see that the flesh sleeps while the spirit prays. And I know this passage, and I don't, we probably won't be able to explore this like we could infinitely, but yes, Jesus, who is God, is talking to God the Father. Jesus, who's the second person in the Trinity, is talking to God the Father. And again, I want you to understand this. This is not new. Do you understand that before the creation of the world, before we existed, God, Elohim, God who is one and yet plural, this idea of the oneness of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit always existed. The Son was not created, always existed. And so guess what that means? They talked to each other beforehand. They had a relationship and love and community before the, even the world. This is just, he's, Jesus is used to this. He's used to praying. He's used to talking to God. People get like, I don't understand this theologically. Well, he did it before, before we were even created. Don't worry. Like, there's that side. We understand that Jesus prayed and talked to God, talked to his Father. And we see Jesus again going to the garden and saying, God, this is my flesh. I, th- this human body thing, it's hurting, man. It's hurting. My will is tired, but not, not what I will, but your will. And we see that's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. And here's what we're going to see next. In this moment of chaos, our flesh reacts. Look at number five. The fifth thought is the flesh reacts in moments of chaos. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer, Judas, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their head on him and took him. They laid their hands on him and took him. Verse 47, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All right, before we talk more about Peter, um, <laughs> this is so interesting to me. First of all, we got to understand Judas's mindset. It's, it blows me away to think that he betrays Jesus, the Son of God, with a kiss, with something intimate, with something beautiful. And it's, this word kiss is actually like this expressive, beautiful, intimate thing. Like it's, it's a kiss of love, but it's not a kiss of love. But that's the word that's used. It's like it's this kiss with intimacy, but to lead him to death. You know, it's like the idea of where that phrase, like the kiss of death, that's Judas. And this is re- religious hypocrisy at its finest. Uh, with our lips, we're praising God, but our hearts are far from him. With our lips, we kiss him, but we don't love him. And that's Judas. With his lips, he's honoring him in a sense, but his heart is far from honoring him. His actions are far from honoring him. And this is religious hypocrisy at its finest. And what happens at this moment? It's funny, in verse 47, we're told that the disciples wake up. Jesus, remember, he's like, hey, guys, you fell asleep again. And look, look, they're here. They probably had like 30-second reaction. Like, guys, look, you fell asleep again. And look, they're right here. Here comes Judas, kiss Peter, in the days, we're told in John 18 that this was Peter. Peter's like, oh, what's happening? Pulls out his sword, cuts off his ear. He didn't mean to cut off his ear. Let's give Peter some credit. He meant to go for the head. Uh, he didn't mean to cut off the ear. Like he, he literally was ready to fight. He missed. He cuts off his ear. John tells us Jesus puts it back on. We're told that guy's name whose ear got cut off was Malchus. He's one of the servants of the high priest. But I want us to see this. Oh, what's going on? He wasn't praying. He wasn't in tune with God. 
He wasn't in tune with the Spirit. He wakes up in a moment of crisis. What does he do? I need to fix this. I need to solve this problem. They're taking Jesus. Let's fight. And rather than being in tune with God in prayer, rather than being in tune with the Holy Spirit, he wakes up and just responds, and that is the flesh. Rather than being in tune with God and in prayer and open and seeking and hearing from God, and if Peter was in prayer and was awake for that hour, I believe it would have been handled differently. I don't think he'd be like, yeah, I think he'd actually be understanding what Jesus is about to walk through. And so we see that the flesh so often responds and reacts in moments of crisis. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 5, talking about the flesh again. Romans 8, verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Peter's mind is, ah, my Jesus is being taken. Fight, kill, attack. He set his mind on the things of flesh. He didn't understand that moment of what was happening. And then on the other hand, number six, here's what we see. We see Jesus responds so differently. Jesus, listen, number six, the Spirit is guided by the Word in peace. The flesh reacts, but the Spirit is guided by the Word in peace. Look at verse 48. It says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the Scripture, listen, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsake him, forsook him and fled. Notice Peter's reaction of, I got to fix this. This is, this is not good. And Jesus is like, hey, I was always with you guys. What do you, what do, you do? But you know what? The scriptures must be fulfilled. There's a side of Jesus where he's just constantly looking to scriptures. He's calm. He's not reacting like Peter. He knew this was going to happen. Why? Because he's a man of the word. Remember the first verse in verse 27? He quotes from Zechariah 13 and says, hey, remember the, the shepherd must be, stri- must be stricken. I'm going to mess that up again. The, stri- the shepherd must be hit <laughs> and the sheep are going to scatter. But here's the thing. Jesus points to the word in the beginning of this. He's pointing to the word now. The whole idea is this. Someone who's led by the Spirit knows the Word, is in the Word, loves the Word. The Word and the Spirit are not contrary to each other. When someone acts like, oh, I don't really, I don't need the Bible. I have the Spirit. It's like, the breath of God, the Spirit of God wrote this book. Like, someone who's led by the Spirit knows the Word of God, has the Word of God in them. It's not going to be, they're not going to be fighting against each other. Jesus is in in this moment, we see that perfect peace going, you know what? The Scriptures must be fulfilled. This must happen this way. I know the word. He's led by the spirit. He's submitting to the spirit of God because he knows the word of God. And please understand this. Can, I talk, can we talk about someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not that they're charismatic and super outgoing. It's someone who's filled with the spirit knows the word. They know the word. They love the word. They're led by the word. They're guided by the word. They take the word into consideration. They're not going to be easily moved. They're not going to be easily swayed. They're not going to respond in moments of crisis. We've got to do something. There's going to see this this calmness, this peace, the peace of God guiding, surpassing all understanding in this moment. That's Jesus being led by the Spirit who knows the words, quoting the word, reminding them of the word, constantly saying, I'm about to be taken, guys. Don't you remember the scriptures about this? You, you, you already forgot this? He's constantly pointing them to the word. That's what a spiritual man or woman looks like, someone who's in tune with the word of God, who submits to the word of God, who has the word of God lead them to this peace and understanding of, hey, you know what? It has to be fulfilled. This is good. And we see the side of Peter reacting and Jesus just, in this moment, speaking calmly, looking at them, and being led by the word of God. And lastly, what's up with that naked guy who's running around naked? What is, what is up with this? Because <laughs> this is really an interesting, look at verse 51 one more time. Would you just read verse 51? It says, now a certain young man followed Jesus, having a linen cloth, and this is an interesting fun fact, thrown around his naked body. How did he know? Uh, And the young man (laughs) laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And then Jesus basically goes to the Sanhedrin and stands. Like, that's it. Like, what is that? 
like, and then there's a young guy who's like just had a, a robe on and they ripped the robe off and so he ran away naked in the garden. You're like, what? Okay, so let me just, a couple things that I, I want to point out. Um, historically, and this is interesting, early church fathers and writers go, this is Mark. <laughs> Mark's like, make, Mark makes his cameo in, in the, like, hey guys, remember that? You want to know how I knew that? It was me. Um, that's probably likely. I think this could be Mark. Mark's right himself in the story. Maybe the idea he's just like around the disciples. Remember, he's discipled by Peter. Possibly it's him. Doesn't really, but how does that change or affect the story? Here's another thing I do want to point out. It's these little weird side stories to me that make the Bible so real. <laughs> it's these stories you go, what is that? Again, ancient literature is not written like this. They don't add facts or details unless they add to the greater story unless they somehow are pointing to something like to, to further their heroic story or the tragedy. There's usually not little side things unless it's written like this because this is just how they remember it. <laughs> unless this is what happens. And then there's that guy who, uh, you know, they tried capturing him too, but he wiggled out of his garment and ran away naked. And that's how I remember it. And like, oh, for them this is written as history. This is just fact. It's, it's us going to an event and we remember some weird little detail. Like, what was the event like? And like, oh my gosh, everyone had like this unicorn horn on. It's so weird. Like, I just saw this everywhere. It's like, oh, why do you remember that? I don't know. It's just, it's the way it happened. The point is, sometimes these little stories in the Bible, for me, just, it just solidifies the Bible. C.S. Lewis, who studied ancient literature, basically said this. He goes, the gospel content is far too detailed to be legend. That's the way he wrote it. The gospel content is far too detailed to be legend. It gives so many weird, Jesus caught, they caught 153 fish. Like, okay. What, what? And people are like, oh, 153, you know, that if you take 15 and add three, it's Trinity. And like, people get so weird by numbers. It's like, no, it's just, this is writing down a fact and remembering as history and this really happened this way. And here's what I do want to point out, because this to me is, what, this is what significance. And those who know the Bible, those who study the Bible, what, is, what does your mind go to? Here's what I see. In a garden scenario, we see man running from God naked. What does that remind you of? In the Garden of, of Eden, we see man running from God, fleeing God naked. We see him naked and exposed and going, I got to get out of here. I got to hide myself from God. And it's almost like this weird, strange reenactment of what happened in the garden. This man running from God, fleeing from God, and just trying to get out of there. And we see this. We see that God was abandoned in the garden so that you and I would never have to be abandoned. God was abandoned in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. God was abandoned again in this garden. But this time, God was abandoned ultimately to pursue us so we would never have to be abandoned. Again, I just quoted this guy earlier, but it's so good. Daniel Aiken wrote about this guy, about the story. He said, And so again, as it was in the Garden of Eden, our nakedness is exposed as we desert the God who loves us and has graced us so abundantly with his kindness and good gifts. Our nakedness is exposed when we desert the God who's just so good. When you desert God, he goes, your, your nakedness is exposed, and this reminds us of the garden. And here's for me how I wrote it. I just wrote, Jesus suffered so intensely in this garden so one day we could live with him forever in the heavenly garden. Jesus went through what he went through in the garden so we could forever be with him in this garden city, the, Bible, the way the Bible describes it. This city, this community of people just filled in that garden-esque scenario, the way Jesus originally, God, the, the way God originally intended it for us to be, to walk and talk with God, God in the garden, in paradise. We'll see that one day we'll get back to that garden. Our God was abandoned in the garden so we could be in a garden with him one day and not have to be abandoned. Amen? Amen? This is something, I, this is the weirdest little side story. I don't fully get this, but it reminds me of how we once fled from God in a garden naked and no more. No more. Because Jesus was abandoned in the garden, we don't have to be. We can now come to the garden and have a deep relationship with God. Amen? Guys, let us be a community of people 
we will, we will fail, we will fall. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But let us be a community of people that strives, that strives to feed our flesh, to walk in the spirit, not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Let us be a community of people that says, yes, my flesh is weak and I will fail and there will be grace in those moments, of course. But let us be people that learns from Jesus and say, even though I feel this way, even though I'm not in it in the moment, even though I'm tired and exhausted, not what I want, but what your will be done. Like, let us be those people that are just deeply in tune with the Spirit so we're not reacting in moments of chaos. There were people led by the Word in those moments. Amen? I'm going to pray. I'm going to close with a couple announcements or thoughts and uh, let you guys go. Father, I know that um, you, you, have, you have given us your Spirit. And forgive me for not always um, listening, for not always submitting, God, we do ask that you just show us what does it look like to walk in the Spirit. Show us what it looks like to love better, to listen better, to be led by your word, to be in prayer. Show us what that looks like, God. Let us not hear of those desires. Jesus, when you say pray with me, let us pray. When you say watch, let us watch. We, we ask, God, that we would just sense this urgency, that we'd wake up, that we'd be in tune with you, God. So, Lord, I, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for this community, God, of people here seeking to follow you, seeking to know you, Jesus, when we sin, when we're in the flesh, let's be quick to repent, quick to own it, and quick to move on and walk in the Spirit. Thank you again. We ask that you would just guide us now, lead us now, that Jesus, you would remind us of what you walked through in this garden so that one day we could be with you in that heavenly garden. We thank you, God. There's absolutely no one like you. Speak to our hearts now, Jesus, even as we just leave this place. Let us continue to hear from you. In your wonderful name, amen.